Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to Live Longer, the podcast, as we continue the second series on the art of living. And today we're going to take a further deep dive into long COVID. You may have listened a few weeks ago when I interviewed Professor Luke Howard from the Hammersmith Imperial Healthcare on policies evolved, treatments emerging in both the NHS and private sector for long COVID. And what is this entity, long COVID? And today I have a very special guest in studio who indeed has suffered long COVID and has a wealth of experience behind her because she's a qualified physician. She's trained in psychiatry and is a member of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. She's passionate about health and longevity and in fact is the medical director of the Six Senses Longevity Centre and is the CEO and co-founder of her own wellness organisation called Wellgevity. And if this isn't enough, she's also an athlete and she was Iron Lady of the Year in 2014 and um, goes on her social media field as Sporty Doc because she really is passionate about athletes. She comes from an athletic family and I think she's the perfect person, a physician, athlete, a mother, a human being and a, a wonderful lady friend of mine to discuss this topic and how it has affected her and her life in all the different senses. So join me in the warmest welcome to Dr. Tamsin Lewis. Tamsin, welcome. Hello, nice to be here talking to you. <laughs> well, it's great to have you and thank you for giving up your afternoon to me now um, and to my listeners. And, um, you know, we have a difficult topic because obviously I hope this doesn't recreate too many bad memories for you, but I think it's incredibly generous of you to come on, not just give your time, but give your emotional energy to this discussion, because I know this has been a really difficult journey for you. But I have revealed in the intro that you did have COVID and subsequently developed long COVID. But would you like me, would you like to tell me a little bit about your experience with COVID, long COVID, as we just start into this topic, Tamsin? Yeah, sure. I mean, you're right in saying that it's 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 somewhat emotionally triggering because it was a pretty dark time, and I'm almost you know it's almost two years ago now. So um, you know, and I still have a lot of residue of the of the illness ongoing. But I think at the time I developed it, I was in the first wave. You know, the, the before the first lockdown, and I had a big viral load. How do I know that? Well, a couple of things. One, my daughter had a fever a cough and a face and a face rash and she kissed me on the lips and as she kissed me on the lips to say goodbye she was going with her dad and then she kind of coughed directly into my mouth and you know that light I developed lots of gastrointestinal symptoms very much sweaty shivering I wear something called the aura ring which picks up on heart rate heart rate variability which is a measure of sympathetic nervous system activity and body temperature and it was like flagging red at me everywhere and I remember publishing something on social media saying if this is the coronavirus, then it certainly doesn't feel like a cold. Um, and, you know, we couldn't get tests then, even privately, when companies started selling them for like 500 quid a swab. I don't know if you remember that time. Yeah, I do. Mm. Uh, yeah. And it, was, it wasn't until the doctor's laboratory, I think it was somewhat, it was over three and a half weeks later, and I was still positive on a PCR. And I was like, whoa. Um, and I remember her writing to me, the, 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 the director at the lab saying, oh, um, ring your bells hard or something congratulations you know as if to say you now had it and you've got a badge of immunity but mm. um, it, it really didn't feel that way I did a few things wrong you know one at the start of the illness so I said to you I had gastrointestinal symptoms I had fever 
I then had lots of like shortness of breath. I remember calling an ambulance and I was with my daughter on my own who was six and they basically said, can you breathe? And I said, well, yes, kind of, but I really don't feel well. And they said, um, do you want us to go, you know, we'll come. And then I basically said, no, it's fine. Don't come at this time. I'll be okay. But it, it turns out that I wasn't okay. And I, and seven days later, so this was around the sort of day seven, eight mark, I had what we then knew to be the cytokine storm. So I was lying in bed and I had this horrendous, like almost like the pain from pregnancy around my around my pelvis, around my lower back, my hip flexors. And it was like I was literally, it was the worst pain you can imagine. I called the NHS 111 and, and, and they basically said, take painkillers. And I ended up on a ton of codeine and um finally that made it okay but you know at this point I was I was not even able to walk you know I couldn't I could barely get out of bread I was out of breath having a shower and you didn't get admitted to hospital at this point you you were just told to take painkillers yeah they basically said if you are at all able to function you haven't got any comorbidities then don't come in so I I stayed at home I mean I was literally calling 111 every day I was so worried and you know this is at the time we weren't allowed to see anyone I was on my own with my six-year-old and um, we didn't even know if it was COVID but it kind of sounded like COVID everyone was saying so I was basically self-medicating with um, I had azithromycin at the time which is you know self-medicating in that you know I was speaking to a friend of mine who's a doctor I couldn't get through to any GPs no one was no one was doing you know it was very difficult I have private medical insurance they weren't touching anything to do with COVID so I basically was on his advice you know I, I did three days of azithromycin you know at this time it was very sort of touch and go about the hydroxychloroquine but a, a colleague of mine prescribed it and I did um, I did five days of that I felt absolutely terrible because I think it dropped my blood sugar and I wasn't eating very much um, so I'm not, quite, I'm not quite sure how much good that did but again it, we really didn't know what what anything was doing that at that point in time so I was also doing something which I know I shouldn't have done as well, taking oral iron, which when you've got an active infection, yeah, I was taking Floridex because I thought it might be, you know, boost me up again a bit. And then I, I forgot, you know, in the context of an acute infection, you shouldn't take iron because it, it feeds the pathogens. And then I, I, was, I was taking my own blood, mm. sending it to the laboratory in London. And my uh, colleague of mine was, you know, helping me analyze it. And I remember looking at the inflammatory markers on my ferritin was like 200 and, and the whole profile looked terrible, but still they didn't want to take me into hospital. Um, and then I started to feel a bit better sort of about two weeks later. Bear in mind, as soon as I could get out of bed, I was going out for walks. I was thinking if I can still do some form of exercise, then I will get better and I might might be okay. And every time I did some kind of impact exercise, even such walking, I felt inflammation like hot spots in my joints, for example, which I'd never had before. And then in my left lung as well, which continued to feel quite tight. Anyway, long story short, ended up calling because I started to develop lots of a racing heart. And, you know, I, I started to worry about that. I did call ambulance again. Finally, they took me into hospital. They said that I was having an allergic reaction to something. Apparently, I'd taken some supplement. They said I was having an allergic reaction. I mean, I don't remember taking anything but anyway they ended up giving me chlorpheniramine which made me feel an antihistamine which made me feel a little bit better they said my oxygen saturations were okay at rest but we we do know now that a lot of especially athletic people have a lot of sort of pulmonary reserve and they don't desaturate until 
you exercise. So if I was to walk, you might in saturations mm. would drop as I found. Anyway, really, I was you know given no help by the by the healthcare system at all. It sounds like you were doctor at home. You know what you're describing is what many people in this country experienced because there was so many unknowns. As Luke said to me, it was literally an evidence based desert. And we couldn't access services and, you know, many of us were told to work from at home. So you you had the experience that many people in the country had, even though you were a doctor. So being a doctor still didn't help you get admitted to hospital. And you were putting yourself in a position of analysing your own tests and diagnosing yourself. I mean, that must have made the experience even worse for you, Tamsin. The fact that you felt that, there, you know, after giving so much of yourself all your career to other people, that at the end of the day when you needed the help most, and as a single mother, I mean, how many other single mothers are out there who have children and who are too scared to go into hospital and, and who's going to mind your child? So, you know, I had that issue as well. Mm, it's terrifying. I, I mean, I, I can literally say I was I was pretty terrified at, at times. And this is, you know, as someone I put myself through a lot of adversity, most of it self-determined, you know, in, in, in endurance sport. But I literally felt I had nowhere to fall. You know, no one could give me any answers. And I feel like, like you said, I've trained. I've, I understand a lot of this. Yet I was you know, badgering a colleague of mine who was very, you know, helpfully, he 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 set up a COVID tracking system as well. So he was, you know, saying, you know, we do think early on, he was saying, take aspirin, because we do think there's some clotting stuff going on. Because the lung symptoms were so bizarre, you know, that kind of feeling that you can't, can't take a breath. And and to be honest, when they took me into hospital, they did a chest x-ray and deemed it normal. Mm. But it wasn't until three weeks later that I met, three months, sorry, later, this was June 2020, that I managed to get a CT scan privately done in London. And I remember thinking, oh no, it's probably fine. There's probably some resolving thing. And then the, the consultant called me and he said, you have widespread pneumonitis. You have bronchiectasis in your left lung. This is not good. And had you got symptoms, Tamsin? Were you still symptomatic at this point? Yeah, I was still I was still still mm. short of breath and, and very tired. But you know, I was able to do stuff. I was functioning, and I did. I had something which is interesting to your med- medical colleagues as well. I, I my hemoglobin went up to like seventeen from like thirteen, so it was like I was chronically altitude training. Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, this hypoxic stimulus to to uh, develop a lot of hemoglobin, which then you know shifts yeah. the ability to be able to deliver oxygen. So, you know, it, it was it was tricky. And even then, with that, he's like, "Well, we don't really know what to do." And I tried some inhaled steroids. They sent me hypermanic. I couldn't sleep. If you don't sleep, you don't recover. And I think that for a lot of people with long COVID, they experience dysautonomia, and and that's the virus has a very dark energy for some. And I I noted that as well. Like it kind of felt, you know, as existentially very heavy. And the dysautonomia, that kind of sense of pounding of your heart at night and the sort of subjective anxiety was was very difficult. And I did end up taking a tiny bit of um, phenazepam, which was prescribed by a psychiatrist friend that I ended up, he ended up referring me and I did see a psychiatrist formally, which at that point I felt, you know, he tried to diagnose me with PTSD and I, I, I felt a little bit let down by that, to be honest, because, you know, I, I knew that I had ongoing physical symptoms. It wasn't just anxiety related to the event. So that whole dosotonome, and it wasn't until in August 2020 that a GP colleague mentioned that Paul Glynn had been doing a lot of work around long COVID. And he was very interested in the UCL. I went to see him and my life fundamentally changed. And he reminds me that I turned up in his 
waiting room and when I walked in here I said I am desperate I'm on my knees and I was and you know most doctors like just have an antidepressant that's mm. fine but Paul for the first time validated my experience up until that time I had seen a psychiatrist I'd seen a rheumatologist who I said can you please you know something needs to be done I my knees feel like they're so super inflamed for disclosure that wasn't me by the way <laughs> No, definitely not you. Uh, it was, um, but I was very much gaslit by them. They're like, no, you're fine. You've just been through a traumatic event. Your power and your knees is fine. I'm like, well, that's not the point. They feel like I'm walking on. My inflammation markers by that time, the ESR and CRP, they were all normal. So people just said, you know, it's fine. It's post-viral. Anyway. But um, Tamsin, can I just ask you, when you went to Paul and Paul validated it, now this is actually a really, really important point. And Luke and I were debating this as well. It's actually really important for somebody to recognise it. Now, although it's largely a diagnosis of exclusion and one mustn't attribute everything to long COVID because we will miss pathologies, but it isn't it welcoming when you have a body of experience and somebody's able to tell you what's wrong with you. And this is the same, not just for long COVID, but any patients, and I see them in rheumatology, they come in with collection of symptoms and, and for somebody to spend the time, unravel it, give you a firm diagnosis or as firm as it can be, and then a roadmap to recovery. Do you think that was a watershed moment then? And that's why, because you got this, yes, it's this and I'm listening. And it, he he does listen and he is very good at complex cases and, and he's my boss at the Physician Cynic, so I can attest to that. Yeah, I think that was the thing with Paul. He listened to me. He examined me. He was like, you are sick. You know, you, this is dysautonomia. You, your resting heart rate goes up to 110 just from sitting to standing. And having spent months being gaslit and, and not admitted to hospital because I didn't feel, you know, my resting heart rate was 110 when it's normally 40. So Paul listened. He didn't really know, like many of us, what to do, but he did he was having early success with antihistamines and just by going on antihistamines regularly at, at a relatively high dose that fundamentally shifted how I was and that really helped you know I was getting a lot of sort of um, periorbital edema on my face and it was just lots of histamine related issues which I didn't mm. no one had really described to me before. And now we're all seeing them. And for the benefit of the listeners who might not be medical, dysautonomia, we have the central nervous system, which is the brain and, and the spinal cord and the peripheral nervous system, for example, the nerves in your limbs, being very simplified about it now. And then the autonomic, which is this kind of secret nervous system that, you know, innervates the gut and the heart and, and controls our flight and flight response. So this is what you talk about when you talk about dysautonomia and can be presenting in patients with palpitations and and sweating and, and unusual reactions to even eating or exercise, correct? And for an athlete, that must be very disconcerting, those symptoms. It was just very strange, you know, and I, all I wanted to know was just get to the bottom of it, right? And when you have blood tests that are like normal and, you know, it wasn't until I had some MRI scan that they showed, um, I had an MRI of my heart, which my ejection fraction was way lower than what it was when I had one done as an athlete. And, you know, so there was borderline inflammation, myocarditis. So anyway, widespread damage, really, that, mm. <laughs> that you don't expect in someone that's, it was that we were fed a narrative, weren't we, that if you were relatively fit, that you'd be fine. But actually, what we now know is that many athletes have you know, especially perimenopause and people that have pushed themselves have this dysregulated 
immune response. And we know there's a degree of autoimmunity in long COVID. And I think that's definitely what what I was seeing. I had um, leading into this COVID experience, uh, six months earlier, I was living in a moldy house, which took a long time to prove, but there was a lot of evidence of heavy mold. And I did a urine test that showed high levels of mycotoxins. So I had mold illness, which was triggering my immune system, which meant that fundamentally it went a bit bonkers when faced with a high viral load. So your immune system was primed. I mean, I agree with that. And many people would say that long COVID may be a form of of lupus even, I've heard a couple of colleagues saying, you know, I think it's bad to put, you know, a label or the tendency, the human tendency in, in, as a physician anyway, say, oh, it's this and it's that. The fact is that the immune system is on hyper alert. And that's why we need to use some of the same medications and the same approaches as we would use for conditions where the immune system is on hyper alert, be it rheumatoid lupus and and all of these conditions. So I think recognising that gives maybe medics, which will ultimately help patients, a framework for dealing with it. And is that what you found when you eventually got to Paul that, you know, he suddenly had a framework and how to handle your symptoms and handle your plan moving forward? I did. I still think there was, you know, we were stabbing in the dark, for example. You know, I I remember calling him and saying, I'm convinced I have rheumatoid, right? I had all the symptoms. I should preempt this by saying I have Raynaud's, right? You know, I've had Raynaud's for years, you know, that Mm. kind of purple discoloration of the hands. But the joint inflammation in the small joints of my hands and my wrists, it was extraordinary. And, And, you know, but they would run the tests and then the rheumatoid factor would be negative, they couldn't really find there was a weekly, but you know, cytoplasmic staining. So there was weak, very weak positivity there when they do an autoimmune screen. So still, still we don't really have the biomarkers to say what is the autoimmune process in in long COVID, even though that we know it's there. And I know, you know, people are treating it differently. They're kind of and Paul's approach was to treat dysregulation, which is, you know, mast cell degranulation releasing histamine. So he's treating upstream, right? He's treating the histamine system plus he's also was trying to get people to sleep and to to, to focus on treating the dysautonomia which is disrupting sleep and if you don't sleep you don't recover and so all of that really and um, the exercise intolerance that came with it because many of us were trying to sort of push back and then you get the release of these cytokines these inflammatory mediators which then causes cascade reaction in the body which is results in post-exertional malaise PEM as we call it There's been a lot of evolving research on it, but the amount, the sheer number of people that have long COVID is forcing, you know, research to actually sit up and listen because no, you know, people are being referred to long COVID clinics and getting nothing more than being told to pace and some respiratory physio. And quite frankly, that's, that's not helpful. Yeah. So they need like what you say, you know, we need to treat this like an autoimmune illness, but for some, there's also evidence accumulating that there's clotting, right? There's Mm -hmm. micro clotting, which is, in the UK system, we don't even have a way of looking for microclots. Yeah. You know, people are going to paying fortune to go to to the states, as not the states, sorry, Germany to to even have their blood filtered. You know, and it's uh, yeah, it's difficult. But I think there's clusters of the illness. There's 
some patients who present with microclotting and perimyocarditis and other patients are more autoimmune illness. Then there's another group of patients that have classical brain fog and fatigue and tiredness. So I think there's different what we call phenotypes, collection of symptoms emerging. And I think ultimately, you know, once we have a critical number of patients enrolled in clinical trials and we try different methodologies in clinical trials so we can get answers quicker, like in the REACT study, we will be able to stratify who's going to respond best, say, to antihistamine, who needs the immune modulatory agents, who needs maybe more advanced therapeutics. So I don't think it's one size fits all. And it's really a case of taking each person individually for the moment, understanding. I agree. And, yeah. and hopefully that happened to you. Do, do you feel now that you're you recovering, Tamsin? Yes. So if I looked how I was, you know, six months ago as to how I am, you know, now there's definitely been improvement. If I say year on year, (laughs) you know, it's like, I remember Paul telling me it's probably a three year sort of cycle. But if I think about the amount of money, time I've invested into trying to be well, right. And then I look at all the people that contact me on social media and say, can I do this? And everyone's trying to look for an, you know, an answer and they're spending a fortune on naturopathic medicine and all these supplements and all these obscure tests and some people aren't really aren't getting better despite that Mm. so well can I ask you about that you were just saying you're being approached on social media and I think that's really interesting because you're a physician let's not forget that you're a practicing medic so how do you handle that and people know that you've had COVID and that you've been you know struggling to overcome symptoms and reaching out for help. And now people come and reach out for you. So how do you deal with that as a physician sufferer of COVID on social media? Because is social media becoming the new doctor at home? And, and how do you handle it? Because that's another stress for you, isn't it? I think for someone as empathic as me, I find it hard because, you know, when you see all the messages and you think, well, like, you know, they send me their story and you could just say a couple of things that you know, might change it for them. But I, you know, I always have to preempt any conversation with, I can't give you personalized medical advice. And, but then I have this overwhelming sense that, you know, if, if I couldn't get personalized medical advice as a doctor, as someone that literally is very well connected, then, you know, I feel for people, but I've shared a lot of my personal story. I've said, this has worked for me, but you are not me. I am not your doctor. Please, you know, you can go and ask for these types of tests. But, you know, at the end of the day, there's a lot we don't know. So first, you know, harm, right? Mm. Personalised is really, really important, you know. So you can't give them personalised information. You can share experience. But I think ultimately we'll have to collate a body of evidence that we send to patients. And, And that's one of the areas that I'm passionate about, having set up a digital tech company to share information, the right information at the right time with patients. Because clearly there isn't the manpower resource, the number of physicians, the hours in the day. And I, too, like you, get approached by people all the time. And my heart aches for some of my colleagues, my patients who are suffering and struggling. But I think we will have to use digitally enabled pathways in order to get the information out there to patients to help them feel a bit better. I don't know how you feel about that, but I think we we need to approach this in a slightly different way because this is a population-based problem rather than just a small number of people. It's not an orphan illness. No, no, no. I totally agree. Someone who I met through the whole long COVID experience, someone called Jez Medinger, who set up, it was actually a private GP in London that recommended his YouTube channel and we became friends and he interviewed me. And he has a very sort of very big audience on YouTube and he is a journalist, a sufferer of long COVID and, and he did his own sort of research, you know, he'd he'd accumulate. And I think this is what a lot of people have done with long COVID. There's been a lot of patient-led research, right, you know, mm, surveys. Mm. 
mm. given out. Uh, you know, and the quality of this evidence obviously has to be assessed. But I think for a lot of us with long COVID and a time where we were given no answers, I think his sharing of experience, other people, other physicians sharing their experience, made us feel like we were, you know, in this together. Mm. And we weren't dying because, mm. you know, there were times where we, we felt, I felt genuinely I was dying. Mm or had cancer, it felt very severe. And there were many that felt the same. And the power of our collective to come together and say, look, we can get through this and there are ways was, um, yeah. Community help is what I'm yes. hearing from you. And I think that's actually really important. But what about all the people, Tamsin, who don't have that? I mean, you and I are lucky, right? We've got a network, we've got training. We can try this, try that, and we can ask colleagues favours. But what about the people out there who, who don't have that? I mean, what must their experience be? It must be amplified to the power of 10, even of yours. And yours is sounding dreadful. I mean, I'm feeling terrible for you that you had to go through all of this. Um, as a colleague and a friend. So what do the rest of the people do and how do they manage, do you think? I think, like you say, people are desperate for information. That's why they're searching social media. And then and there's a lot of scare stories out there and there's a lot of people self-medicating. You know, there's been people buying ivermectin off the internet and, and self-medicating based on the advice of some American doctor, you know. So I've always tried to say, you know, don't do this because you have to be have a first do no harm. And I think... Um, we need more credible people speaking out. You know, I think the fact that Paul Glenn has published some research now on, you know, antihistamine therapy and that he's written in the Telegraph and people, you know, he's written about hormones and the role of hormones because we know that there's an association there, which might be worth mentioning because, you know, a lot of people like me have suffered from long COVID, mm. especially this kind of age group, right? Mm. You know, the sort of mid 40s mm. onwards. So there's a role for sort of early hormone replacement potentially in helping symptomatic long COVID. Mm. But that needs to be done well because throwing in a lot of estrogen can make, you know, mast cell histamine issues worse. So I think I think it is a fine balance and there's not enough people that know enough. Mm. You know, we don't all have Paul's level of insight. So we have to treat on face value and what we see symptomatically. And if I was to come to see you, you know, like I said, with many rheumatological issues, mm. which were ongoing, and I know we we have to tread carefully but I, I did, on the advice of a colleague in America, start to take low-dose naltrexone, which is off-label. Right? Mm. Naltrexone is yeah. a drug that's used for alcoholism at, at a full dose, but at a very tiny dose, it's, it has been shown, although the research is slightly flimsy, to modify the production of in pro-inflammatory cytokines, which I know because I did this extensive cytokine panels for a company called Chronomics mm. are offering an inflammaging test at the mm. time they've stopped doing it but they were collating some research on biological age and inflammaging in people with long COVID and you know I lots of my interleukins were were, were raised really wonky so low-dose naltrexone for me was very helpful but would it have been another mild immunosuppressant uh, be as helpful? We don't know. And I can't advocate given that it's off-label, off-license. Yeah, and we have to wait for the evidence to emerge on that. But there are clinical trials registered for its use in COVID, not necessarily long COVID. So I think obviously we'll have to watch this space for that and, and many other therapies that people, as you say, are trying. Because I think we're 
entering a fundamental shift in the way medicine's being practiced and the agenda is being pushed by our patients because the health services are stretched. So I think we're going to see very much, you know, a different approach emerging in the next couple of years where it'll be doctor at home, the emergence of self-testing. Patients want to live longer, healthier lives. They're more proactive about their wellness. I think the pandemic has scared us all into looking after ourselves a bit better, which may even change the epidemiology of many chronic diseases. So I think this space is really in flux, very dynamic. And, and if anything good comes out of it, it might be that, you know, we all pay better attention to our well-being and our health. I think that's one thing that it, it's taught me as well. I always used to take my my health for granted as long as I could run. <laughs> so, and now, and now I can't. Well, I am back to running a, a you know a few kilometers jogging, but you know it, there's far much more to health than cardiovascular fitness. And 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 often many many young or middle aged women as well, you know, and men, we we try and do it all. Mm. You know, we try and have the job, the family. You know, we get up early and we mm. go running or we go to the gym. And actually, that's just more oxidative stress which is no good for the immune system sometimes. So if there's been a lesson in it, it's to encourage more restoration into mm. activities, you know, the more the yoga, the breath work, which regulates your autonomic nervous system that we touched on, which is related to everything. And also gut health. We can't finish this conversation without mentioning gut health because there oh, has yes. been some... Very important. Yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's tricky to know how healthy is my gut, but um, there are companies, mm. consumer companies... Like Biome Insight is one that's very well as a high esteem and it's relatively inexpensive. You can get a full readout of your microbiome because the studies do show that the, the, the poorer the diversity in the gut, the worse you suffer from COVID and also your increased risk of long COVID. So that's something I've been I've been looking at as well. Well, I think it's an emerging area in science. I interviewed Tim Spector and Fergus Shanahan, both world international researchers in the field. And in fact, I might put a link to this in in the um, bio for this uh, conversation. I recently worked with Alina Trabatoni, who did a commissioned article on the boom in healthcare at home testing. And you've mentioned a few of those for Langebusen. And I think that's a really interesting read. And there's a lot of these products out there. And you and I have been banding names around here and we kind of know how to interpret them. But for those of you at home who are going to test these, I think it's important that not just doing the test doesn't give all the answers, but it's the inference and what you do with the results afterwards. So working with your clinicians to make sense of the tests will be important. And they got this so right in the States. You know, when I worked in Canada, people used to come in with tests and outputs from Google all the time. And my role became as a guider, I was the shepherd of the information. And I think we're a little bit behind that in the UK, but it's here now. And I think we have to become shepherds of our patients to really help them understand the minefield of information that's out there. I completely agree. And a lot of people have done a lot of tests and, you know, they're not personalized. And there's a quite damaging supplement um, recommendations that come off the back some, of some of some tests that... Uh, mm that can do harm you know i've seen people end up in on you know thousands of pounds worth of supplements that that they interact and can cause problems so i agree some having some validated so i'd love you to post the links to them that'd be good mm, well definitely well look tamson thank you so much for coming on i mean it's it's not easy to share your story and so publicly and it's 
As you mentioned, you're an empathetic individual. I can attest to that. I know you and I love talking to you. And I think your story will resonate with so many. I mean, I have heard so many stories in my clinic of people with, with similar experiences where you felt lost, dark, frustrated, scared. You, you, you even mentioned you felt you were going to die at the moment. And then suddenly you met someone who really, really listened and who took action. And you may have got better anyway, but at least you feel that there was somebody there to hold your hand along the journey. And I'm so happy that Dr. Lynn fulfilled that role for you. And thank you for coming on the show this morning. Yeah, it's lovely to talk to you and thank you for your comments. They really resonate. Mm. Thank you, Tamsin. And thank you to all my listeners. It's been a real pleasure to have Tamsin on the show. And I think the discussion is really important and this is an evolving discussion. And for any of my listeners, reflect back on the other conversation I had with Professor Luke Howard for a similar perspective on long COVID as well. And we'll be recording more of these sessions. And please do drop us some feedback on Apple Podcasts or send us an email to livelongerthepodcast.com. Hello at livelongerthepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.